Uh, let's please stand up for the reading God's word, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is in, in the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You may be seated. And here we are. We are at the end. Did you think we were ever going to make it? I know somewhere around early December there was probably some worry that we wouldn't get back to it, but we did, and here we are, we're at the end. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed our walk through First Timothy. Uh, who else? Anybody else? Bless? Yeah, good. Okay, good hands. That's what we, we're good with that. Um, I've really appreciated this, just this, this long conversation we've been able to have uh, concerning the household, what we're supposed to be doing, what are we doing here, some of these different things, just really foundational for us. I'm just really excited uh, to be able to walk through this, and I get to take the last, the actual finish of the book. If you've read enough New Testament, this is where Paul starts to throw stuff in there, sometimes some summations, sometimes he names some names, sometimes he asks for a jacket or something, but you know, normally the end of, of this is a nice little summation to this, and, and this is a great passage, I think. Probably a few of the elders were jealous that I got to uh, teach through this. At least John was. So um, we're going to be finishing this all out here. Um, looking at verse 11, what we need to actually do is go back a couple of verses. And so we're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to talk a little bit about that because the verses 11 through the end are sort of a response to what was being discussed, almost... Uh, the other half of the conversation. So if you have your Bibles, and go ahead and grab them. Um, there, should, there should be some right there in front of you. Yeah, look at that. Convenience, right? Uh, let's look at verse 9 real quick. And if you want to, I can just read it, and I will do that. Look at verse 9. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin, and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And it's important to start there because Paul is going to take us in a different direction after this. Look at verse 11, that first word, but. It's very hard to start in the middle of a thought. So what Paul was sharing in those verses right before is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And I'm sure we've heard uh, different variations of that verse stated. But as we look at tonight, we're going we're gonna to kind of hone in on a couple of different things because Paul actually rounds out the whole book with a discussion of this as well. So it comes back. We'll be back to it. But the idea is this type of love draws us away. I was actually teaching 
uh, student ministries last week, so I didn't get to listen to the message that John had. But I know that that concentration on that drawing us away, that, that pulling us away, this is a theme that's really important for us to look at, for us to understand. And tonight we're going to see that counterpoint to it. So if you look at verse 11, it says, But as for you, so this is Paul talking to Timothy. So we're sort of sitting listening to the apostle talk to his son, his son in the faith. Timothy's a young man, given a great responsibility. And so we get to kind of listen in. And I think we talked about this when we were going through some other elements of Timothy, that there's some sections that seem like they may not apply to you directly or to us directly today, that this is for Timothy, or this is for elders, or this is for someone. But really, Timothy stands as an example for us. These things that Paul share, what he shares here in this letter, is something that we should be listening into, that we should be drawing understanding from so that we can apply these different things. And we're going to grab some of these principles and we're going to talk about them. But, but as for you, Timothy knows this. He says, oh, man of God. And I think we can read that and kind of move past it real quick. It's phrased here, man of God. Right? Now, how many of us would, would, would stand up and say, I'm a man of God, I'm a woman of God? I think maybe... Some of us might hesitate to stand up and just say, I'm a, I'm a man of God, or I'm a woman of God, right? And maybe there's some different reasons for that. Maybe you kind of feel like, well, there's things I'm working on. I haven't been a believer that long. Fill in the blank. It's an interesting phrasing here because when we read it like that, it's easy for us to turn it into a self-focused thing. Man of God, that's talking about Timothy. That, that's, that's a possessive. Flip it around. In English, we can just flip that around to say, God's man. It's a possessive. I think it's really important for us to stop for a second and to look at that because Paul says, you, Timothy, God's man, sort of shifts the focus. I know we just rearranged it, but when we start to say it like that, like we're, we're possession of God, we, we belong to God. We think through the principles of the gospel, he's... He's redeemed us. We're his. That, that means that we need to see what God has for us, that we should be responsive to what he's calling us to do. It becomes a lot less of, here's some really great things that if you want to do them, it's a great idea. Here's some suggestions. If you do this, it's going to be beneficial. This is more, no, you're actually... God's possession. And that sort of changes how some of these things can be applied to us, at least more readily. At least that's how I feel. Doesn't that sound different? But as for you, God's possession, you're God's. God gonna, he's going to relay to you what God wants you to do as his possession, as one that's his. So let's look at this. But as for you, God's man, Flee these things. Well, what things? The things we talked about in the previous verses. So going back to verses 9 through 10. The desire to be rich. The snares that come with it. Those distractions that actually draw us to destruction. The love of money. Wandering away. These are all these things that we should flee, right? So we should not do those things. But the next part, this is what we should do instead. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Well, that's, that's quite a list. Now we look at it, now we actually probably could stop and spend a while going through each one of these to understand what we're supposed to pursue. We're not going to quite take that much time there. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. But let's look at some of these things. Pursue righteousness. That's a very holistic kind of a concept. We're supposed to pursue righteousness. 
This is a huge topic that Jesus delves into quite a bit in his teachings. What is righteousness? What's not righteousness? You know, correct living by the truth, living out justice, these types of things, this is righteous godliness, being like God, separated out, faith, love, these we're much more familiar with, steadfastness, you can probably think of it kind of like an endurance And then gentleness, we probably would not, out of all the virtues, out of all the principles in Scripture, throw gentleness into this list. But it's important. Gentleness has to do with the manner in which we live out these things. You could live out righteousness in a very harsh way. Same for godliness and love, which seems odd, but you can. And so gentleness has to do with the manner in which we are living these things out. These are really big ideas and concepts. And what Paul says to Timothy is you need to pursue these. You need to move forward. Paul is really good at not just saying, don't do this thing. He's good at saying, don't do this thing, but instead you need to do this other thing. You need to do rightly, not just keep yourself from evil. You need to also do the things that are righteous, that are godly. And so if we look through here, let's go back to the passage here. Verse 12, we see, fight the good fight of faith. That is a t-shirt if I have ever heard one, right? And it is. And, and not, I'm not, not to make light of it, but that's, that is one of those, I think, really helpful sentences um, that we can take, we can put in our pocket, and we can take it back out. And if we understand what it means, we can take that out, and it means something to us. So we'll go, we'll go back through this, but... Fight the good fight of faith is a really nice, short, punchy kind of thing we can take with us as a way for us to encapsulate a whole idea or a concept, which is what we're going to do with it. But it says, fight the good fight of faith. And it says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's break that down real quick. So now we got another sort of verb phrase there. We want to take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And this calling is, you know, it's not we're standing out and just hear this voice on the wind. And so we go running after this. It's a little bit more specific than that. It's almost the idea of a summoning. There's a call and you hear the call and you are summoned. And for us, in our context, it would be we're summoned to the presence of God for the purposes of God. We were called. And obviously in this context, Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is most likely something specific that happened in Timothy's life. Maybe it was his baptism. Maybe it was a, a time. Maybe it was when they were commissioned to go and Timothy was there and he made this good confession. Maybe it was just his, the time where he stood in front of others and made this confession. But whatever moment that was, Timothy knew what it was. Paul knew what it was. But the point was that he made this declaration in front of a lot of people. It was public. People knew this confession. So he made it in the presence of witnesses. And then just notice the first part of verse 13. We'll get more into this. He said, I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you. I want to pull out some of these words that are being used. All right? We can kind of see how they relate. Did you play that game on Sesame Street? We're just not going to have the one that's not like the others. We're just going to have all of them there. So I kind of ruined the game, but here we go. Look at verse 12. It says, fight the good fight. So fight. Look at that next sentence. It says, take hold. And then you have called or summoned. 
you have charge. These words all kind of coalesce. They coalesce into some sort of idea. We've got a charge. We've got fighting. We've got taking hold. A lot of these phrases are all kind of talking about this concept of a fight, a battle, a, a struggle. And that encapsulating phrase, fight the good fight of faith, we could take that and we can subdivide that out. These are all sort of elements of those different aspects. It's, it's all in that, that realm. It's what we're supposed to do. And so even... When we, when we start talking about that, we go back to the list of what we're supposed to do or what Paul is telling Timothy to do, right? Pursue righteousness. Pursue was the other one, right? Pursue, to run after it. To, you can't use pursue to explain pursue, but you understand what I mean. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, these are all by which we're supposed to accomplish all of these different things making gentleness seem even more out of place. Godliness feel even out of place because we have a concept of what fighting is supposed to look like. Conflict is supposed to look a certain way. Conflict has certain elements. Battles have certain elements. It's one side versus another, and it's usually a pretty violent affair. And yet what Paul is calling Timothy to do is to fight, but to fight in this manner, righteousness, godliness, I mean, I think we can kind of see that this fight is not a normal kind of fight. There is something unique here. There's something different from what we would normally think of as a fight or a battle. And yet that's what we're being called to do. It's something different. Let's go back to verse 13. Verse 13 is punctuated by this, I charge you in the presence of God. So let's think about this. In, in this context. So let's, let's think about Paul encouraging Timothy, Timothy being this young man, and he's being told, you need to fight a fight. You're going to have to pursue. You're going to have to take hold. You're going to charge, right? You're, all these different elements are here. And so he's calling me saying to him, I charge you in the presence of God. Now think about that. It may, maybe it'd be helpful for you to close your eyes and kind of think through when I, when I, when I talk through what is being stated here, but all of this is to punctuate this charge. I charge you in the presence of God. So first of all, that's a big deal. The charge is being made in the presence of God, which makes God what? Makes him a witness of this. Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you, I'm charging you to do this in God's presence. God is a witness to this. So listen to this. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This charge, this commission is a big deal. It's in the presence of God. These things being stated here, I I took a little time and I, I... I searched through some different commissions that knights would make, some oaths that knights would make. Some of them were very long pages. But this sounds a lot like that, to protect the innocent, to to speak truth. This commission that we're being given, that Paul is telling Timothy to take, and then we ourselves, applying to ourselves. Making this kind of commitment in the presence of God, this is a big deal. And I think sometimes we take our confession, not lightly, that's not the right word. I think we, we, we make our confession, we're charged, and we say, yes, we will do this thing. And once we leave, maybe the presence of other believers, maybe it's just once we get out in the world, I think we underestimate what the battle really is. 
And I think we do not think long enough and in the right context about what that battle is going to look like. And as a consequence, we may come into the fellowship, we may get, for lack of a better phrase, get all charged up. And we go out and we don't think about what the battle's really going to be. So when we come back, think, did I fulfill all of those things? And I don't know that we think through them in that same context. That we made these confessions in. Does that make sense? We go out and some, for some of us, I think we just get distracted. We get pulled away from the seriousness of what we were commanded to do, the charge that we were given. And I think we forget some of the principles we're supposed to live out. And so hopefully this will be a reminder for us. I know that I was deeply convicted thinking through some of these different things, especially today and thinking about standing before you all and discussing this. This is, this is a weighty thing. And I think it, it, it calls for us to look at it from a different angle. Because as we look at this, we, we, let's look at the example of Jesus. It says that he, look in verse 13, he gave a testimony before Pontius Pilate and made a good confession. So what we're actually seeing is we're seeing this interweaving of some really big ideas that inhabit the spiritual world. And then an example is given about Jesus doing something very physical. And I think the challenge for us is we sometimes take our life, our Christian life, when we silo it into two categories, right? But there needs to be an interaction. And I think the reason there needs to be an interaction between those two is because of what our call really means. Let's look at verse 14. We'll finish out this, this section here, and then we'll talk more about that. Verse 14, to keep the commandment un stained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is in, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal Dominion. All that verse 15 and 16 are doing is lifting up Jesus. Jesus is mentioned. We're waiting for his appearance. And then Paul goes on and on about what that means. How great he is. How wonderful he is. If, if you've read through history or it gives descriptions of kings, or you've maybe you've uh, watched on TV some sort of formal something having to do with royalty where they go through the titles and, you know, Duke of this, Duchess of this, and go through all of this. All of these names of, of, of pageantry and things. In times of old, they'd be maybe moments of, of valor or battles fought or something like this. This, what we see here, this is, this is actually the description, this full description of Jesus Christ, who is our king. If we are supposed to be fighting and we're awaiting his return, these are his titles. This is who he is in greater fullness. Look, look at some of these things that are stated here. So it says we're supposed to keep this command until the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then he goes into this. He will display himself in the proper time. He's blessed, the only sovereign king of kings. Lord of lords, alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. I think one of the things that we could draw from this is we could say, how long are we supposed to fight until he appears? Well, how do we know when he appears? I think we'll know. I think we will know when he is here. His enemies surely will know when he is here. 
We are tempted by the enemy to think that our faith, our confession, our charge, who we are, where we are, where we work, what we do, who our neighbors are, the place we live, all these things are insignificant. And they are not. How could they be? If we have such a great Lord, if we have such a great King, and if he has called us, remember, he's the one who summoned us into his presence. And if he's given us this charge, and if he truly is sovereign, like it's stated here, how could any aspect of our life lived in light of our salvation be insignificant? How could it be not as worthy as someone else's call? It's impossible. If Jesus is who he has been described as here, nothing he would call us to do or to be or to accomplish would be insignificant. Do not be taken in. Do not be distracted. Remember who you fight for. So going back into last week's passage, and we'll see this in the next part of this passage here, Paul hones in on a specific topic, which is money, specifically riches, someone who's rich. Talks about that as one of these key things that can draw us away from a lot of things that we just talked about. What we see described here is two worlds. You have the world around us, the seen, and there is the unseen. That which is material and that which is immaterial. And it is so easy for us to focus only on what we can tangibly hold. And I think this is really what Paul is honing in on when he talks about the love of money. Firmly rooted in the physical. If you think about it, someone who has a lot of money, there's a lot of things they can do, right? It's a set a lot. Money can't buy happiness. But boy, everybody would like to try, right? There's this idea that if I have a lot of money, I won't have any problems. Is that really the case? Have you ever met a happy billionaire? Probably haven't met a billionaire. But uh, none of them seem happy. Uh, it seem kind of sad. Honestly, sometimes if you ever spend any time looking at some rich people's lives, it honestly, is sad, rather pathetic. Um, and I don't, I don't say that to be mean. I just mean that our world builds them up so high. And to have someone who owns everything to then see that it doesn't actually amount to much. We get the example. Jesus used this example, this concept, this idea of two worlds and those that are they're sort of in opposition to each other or they can be. He talked about this quite a bit. And in fact, he operated in that way to show the difference between these two worlds. Did Jesus go to all the fine houses and make friends and heal them of their ailments? Generally not. Generally, his time was spent with the poor, with those who were outcasts. The, the fringes of society. He spent most of his time in, the, in these places, and he was asked about it at one point, and he said, why should I go to, or why should a physician go to the well? I'll go to the sick. People who knew and understood that they lacked, it was far easier. But there were some who had, who had wealth, who had riches, who did come to know Jesus, Jesus didn't despise them or push them out. If they came asking Jesus about things, he would talk with them. He spent time with them. And in fact, that became one of the other things that 
the religious leaders of his day would push up against. You were talking to these individuals. You're talking to tax collectors. You're, you're interacting with people with power. Jesus couldn't win, you know? He just really couldn't. Whatever he did, every, they were upset with him. But Jesus talked a lot about this. One of the places where it's shown quite a bit is in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you have a Bible? Go ahead and turn to Matthew 6. There's two specific things I want to point out. We're not going to spend a ton of time here because um, there's too much in the Sermon on the Mount for us to give it its fair shake. But look at the beginning of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Right there, two worlds. Don't perform righteousness in front of others. Your righteousness is so your Father in heaven can see you. Right there, we're getting this set up, right? Thus, look at verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they, might, that they might be praised by others. Jesus says here, truly I say to you, I have, or I'm sorry, they have received their reward. So think about this. For those who want to give and give a lot, sound the trumpets, that's super weird to me. I, who would do that? That's just odd. That I'm going to give and then have the trumpets play. That's weird. That's what they did because they wanted that attention. So they do this, they get the attention, and that was it. That was the reward. You got it. It was in this material world. You got influence. You got someone who thinks you're a good guy now. There you go. That's your reward. No other reward. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Notice we're talking about rewards in either case. You either get an exclusively materialistic in-the-scene world reward or you get a reward from the Father who sees in secret something that's of enduring value that is in the other world. If we're to walk through this, it talks about prayer. It talks about fasting, which we have talked about. Look at verse 19 sort of rounds out what we're talking about here. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this really big principle where you are placing your treasure, that's where your heart will be. That's where your motivation is. That's where your inner man is seeking to, to be, to, I guess, to spend it. But the concept here is you're either laying up treasures here or you're laying up treasures there, either in this world or the other world, one or the other. And so that concept of if you're rich, you can have whatever you want, sure, you can have that here. Jesus gives another example where there's a really rich man, and he's so rich, he can't fit all his riches in one place. And so he says, man, i got to tear down this storehouse and build another one to store all these riches i got. So much riches and stuff, like riches everywhere. So much treasures and whatnot. But then, hey, your life is uh, required of you today. No mention of what happened to those riches. What do you think happened to the riches? We don't know anything about him, his family, whatever. What could have happened? The interactive part of the message. What do you think happened to the riches? <laughs> they were stolen. They rusted. The moths got there. Yes, all of those things. Yes. But what else? Like, like realistically, what probably happened to the riches? They were dispersed amongst two. His family, right? Okay, inheritance, yeah. What else, probably? Debts, yeah, he had to pay off the debts. What else? Oh, taxes. Yes, the thing that is also associated with death. 
right? Taxes, yeah, sure. So it's, it's divided up, it's given out, maybe paid off debts, maybe paid taxes, whatever, but do you think anyone really cares about that treasure or those different things? I mean, they'll care about the treasure itself. Do you think they care that it was his treasure? Once he died, no one's asking him. What do you think we should do? I mean, we kind of satisfy that with a will. What, what should we do with this money? And go to the will and put those places. But it's just redistributed. It's just pushed different places, and that's kind of it. The real question is, what happens to treasures in heaven? I don't know what that means. Because it's in a different world. But if you ask me, whatever you're saving your money for, retirement, so I don't know. Once it's done, what's going to happen to it? It just gets moved around. It doesn't really matter. It's just kind of done. And yet, it's the thing that distracts us the most, issues of money. Even in the church, so many churches split, have disagreements, rifts over money. What do we do with it? Who decides what to do with it? Do we buy this piano or that piano? Whatever, whatever those things. Churchy things, right, that you spend money on color of the carpet, what kind of carpet, what kind of flooring, what, all these different things that occupy that, all distractions. You know why? They're distractions from the things that we're called to do, what we're charged to do. They, they draw us exclusively into this materialistic world. Here's the point that Jesus is making. He's not trying to say, necessarily, that what happens in heaven has no connection with what happens on earth. That's not what we're talking about with two worlds. In fact, in the part where Jesus is talking about prayer, I think we know this one. Our Father who art in heaven. I know it in the old King Jimmy way, but Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next phrase? It doesn't have to be King Jimmy. Thy kingdom come. I'll be honest, I couldn't understand what you said. But um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound like one exclusive world versus another exclusive world? That sort of sounds like a unifying and a bringing together of these two worlds. In fact, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like Eden. It sounds like a place on earth where heaven touches. It sounds like a place where these two places mix. Do you know where that also happens? It happens in the church. When we come here together and we are gathered, it says where two or three or more are gathered, what? God says that I will be there, right? We have and we get to experience together this meeting of heaven and earth together. When, and I think that, that is where this stuff fits for us. We come here and we, we talk about the charge we have, fight the good fight, do this stuff. Yes, we got it. And then when we walk out of here, it's difficult. It's much more difficult for us to see where that heaven and earth connection really is. Where is that in our everyday life? I hope that as we were doing this fasting practice this month, that some of those things started to kind of come into focus. And that's really one of the aspects of fasting is to taking an aspect of our life to recognize our interaction with the immaterial versus our interaction with material, right? Anyone have some experiences during this time of fasting? I, I've had, and we were able to share um, just the other day, some of these different things that God showed us, something special, something unique. Maybe there was a specific prayer and you saw something happen there. That's, that's heaven and earth touching, that's a bringing down. That's that will of God being done on earth. That's that interaction there. And it's so easy for us to be pulled away, for us to be distracted from those different things. It's really difficult because if we were to just be kind of harsh on us, on the world, okay, this is what's difficult, okay? In the Western world specifically, 
there's a plague. And that plague is the wealthy, spoiled, comfort craze, prosperity addicted Western world we live in. All of those things. Our focus is so drawn to some of those things. To that, those are the, those are the most those material things that we're talking about. And our culture is one of the worst at focusing on those things. And as I say that, what I mean for us as believers, it is so much easier to be distracted, right? So much easier for us to be distracted. We look at that at the expense of the eternal. But here's what's interesting, too, because you can say, okay, I'm, I, I understand that and I see that. So then you could turn around and actually we push it too far the other way. So we fight against materialism in maybe some political or philanthropic manner that is without the centrality of the gospel. We don't think about the kingdom. And those aren't the chief motivators for us. And so it's missing the point. And sometimes we work so hard to be not materialistic, but guess what's still in focus in us fighting materialism? Materialism is still the focus. We're just trying to fight it. We aren't thinking on the eternal. We're fighting this thing. We see a problem, we fight a problem. We don't recognize that what we're called to do is to live out the eternal principle. We're to take hold of that. We're to live that part out. That's one of the lies of liberation theology that so many people get mixed up in, especially in areas where they they can easily see the oppression. And so they're drawn away to things where they see if we can somehow get some material help that this is the end goal and it is not. We've just shifted sides. And so what you can have is someone who thinks they are doing something good and they might be, but they are not doing what, what Paul is calling them, what Paul has called Timothy to do, which is to concentrate on that thing which is eternal. Let's go back to second, or first Timothy. My Bible keeps wanting to go to Revelation. Another time. No time. Let's look at the other, the, the last part here. Now, you'll actually notice there in verse 16, you have an amen. Paul just loves endings. He loves endings so much, we get several of them sometimes. Peter does that too. Look at verse uh, 17. And this is great, though. I think maybe Paul ended it. And he's like, great. And then, uh, actually, let me see that scroll again. Yeah, we need to add something. Because we'll notice here, look at verse 17. As for the rich... <laughs> Oh, yeah, forgot, you rich guys, hold on. Because you can get this idea that, well, if you're rich, too bad. Like, you just have to give away all your money or something. Like, there's no direction for the rich. It's just calling out the rich as like, wow, you who are rich, man, it's difficult for you. And it is, there is a trial in being rich. It says, as for you rich in this present age, so this is Paul practically giving Timothy some ideas of what to do with someone who's, I just have a lot of money. What do I do with this? I don't want to be stuck like that. I don't want to be stuck in the material. And so he says to them, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be prideful or boastful or arrogant about your riches. Don't think that you're above someone else because you have, just because someone does not have. Nor set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't, don't take that thing. That, that, that's an internal thing, right? Your hope. What do you place your hope in? Don't put your hope there. But instead, on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. More practical notes here. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, I I like that, being ready to share. Because I don't think what's being called here is, is to have a, you know, have that billionaire go in a helicopter and just throw money. Woo, right? Then he wouldn't have the trial of being rich anymore. 
But that's not being stated here. It's to be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. There's some wisdom that's being implied in there. Ready to share, ready to give when necessary, to do it wisely. I think you could probably put that in there. So it's not necessarily just, just throwing money everywhere. There's, there's some wisdom there. The Lord wants you to be wise with these things. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And I think that is tying in directly with Jesus, with what he was saying. You, you store up treasures in heaven, in that other world, so that you may take hold of that which is truly Life. Again, that's that take hold mentality, that thing that's truly life. Keying in back on that, you take hold of, of eternal life. You, you hold on to those things. That's what you should be grasping. And then he gives his actual ending. Timothy, oh, Timothy, guard and deposit, I'm sorry, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of which is falsely called knowledge, for by professing, uh, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Notice even there, he says, guard the deposit. Again, that eternal thing that was given to Timothy, Paul talks about like a deposit. Again. Materialistic kind of verbiage used in this eternal world kind of a thing. Guard the deposit. As we finish this out, I want to go back to fight the good fight of faith. We're not going to spend a, a, a ton of time doing this, but this idea, this concept is not just here in Timothy. And, and going back to, to this idea, this, this fighting thing, is this, what does that mean? Do we go fisticuffs with... Fill in the blank. I don't know. At that, that point, who are we fighting? What are we fighting? We, give some we got some indications here of some things that they were supposed to do. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Let's look at a couple places real quick. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, uh, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings to us closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, it's a striving, it's a laying aside these material things that distract us, that pull us away. We're, we're running forward, right? Same sort of an idea. There's a fight. There's a, there, now, we're, now we're running a race. You get these ideas of endurance, expending energy. <laughs> Ephesians 6 is another one. It's a great one to go to. If we go to chapter 6, verse 12, we get this exact same idea. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We don't fight in this world. We fight in another. We are fighting a different kind of battle. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. These are some of the same phrases. Now, granted, Ephesians was written by Paul, so it makes sense. Finally, let's look at 2 Timothy. And this is one of the poignant ones. We're going to end with this thought here. But in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy was written. It's his last letter to Timothy. And one of the last letters that he wrote that we have and this is uh, towards the end of his life. He knows he's going to die. He knows this is it. So look at this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. This again is that idea of being distracted, pulled away. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. 
for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Again, material world, Paul's stuck. Is God's word stuck? Absolutely not. Two worlds being discussed here. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul here discusses in chapter 4, he actually says of himself, verse 6, for I am ready being poured out as a drink offering at the time of my departure. I'm sorry, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul identifies for himself. I'm at the end. And that lets us know this is what he's talking about. To fight this good fight is to live this life in light of the eternal, here in the material. Live out what Christ prayed, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray for us that we, refuge, would do this. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, as we talk through the ending of this letter, some of these concepts, this big idea of fighting, Lord, we can ask, how, how do we fight? How, how do we live lives like this? Lord, I pray that we look on the reality of exactly that, that we would fight in this life, not fight physical enemies, but as Paul talked about in Ephesians, an understanding that we fight, Lord, against a spiritual opponent. We fight a different world. We've, I'm sorry, we fight in a different world. We fight concepts. We fight ideas. Um, we don't necessarily take up a physical sword. But Lord, I pray we would learn to take up the sword, the sword of the Spirit, Lord, that we would live this out. And Lord, as, as pilgrims in an unholy land, as living as exiles here on earth, Lord, living as ambassadors waiting for this good government, this kingdom to come, Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, take these principles, live righteous lives, godly lives, share the gospel, warn the offender that the kingdom is coming and that we would fulfill this charge until you come. And at your appearing, Lord, that we would be able to hear, well done. Lord, I pray we would encourage each other and love each other enough, Lord, to bring this up in our normal conversations throughout the week, Lord, that we would highlight these things as aspects of our lives worth pursuing, Lord, that we would take hold of eternal life. I pray you would grow us in this way, and as a church, we grow together in this way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.